Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today I'm going to tell you all about one of my favourite fictional characters of recent years. His name is Joe Swallow. He's a detective in the Dublin Metropolitan Police in the 1880s. He's a man of science, reasoning and cunning. He's not particularly well connected, but his street smarts make him one of the best detectives the city has. And of chief interest to me, he lives above a pub. Welcome to Publin, a podcast about the culture, history and heritage of pubs at home and abroad. Detective Joe Swallow is the primary character in a series of four novels about murders and political intrigue set in 1880s Dublin. Swallow's family owned a pub in Kildare and attempted to send him to medical school, but his hard drinking at the time meant that he didn't complete his studies and instead joined the Dublin police force. As a single man, he roomed above M&M Grant's pub on Thomas Street, owned and operated by a one Maria Walsh, with whom Joe Swallow begins a relationship. A friend put me onto these novels about a year ago and I've been making my way through them ever since. A great deal of the content of the novels is based in historical fact and many of the people and buildings mentioned in the books are also real. From the description of Grant's pub on Thomas Street, we can extrapolate that the location of what was fictionally Grant's pub is actually now called The Magnet, also formerly Agnes Brown's. Connor Brady is the author of the Joe Swallow series. He's also a journalist and academic. Connor was editor of the Irish Times for 16 years and has written extensively about the history of Irish policing. He's got many other accolades to his name, but for today, we're mostly interested in him as the man who invented Joe Swallow and brought Victorian Dublin to life in such a vivid way. Fittingly, I sat down with Connor in the Magnet Pub, where much of the book is set. It was early in the day, so we didn't share Swallow's favourite drink, a Tullamore Dew, but we did go in-depth on topics including recreating an older version of Dublin on the page, policing, and of course, pubs. 
A little word of warning that the audio is not as clear and crisp as I wanted it to be and the pub was slightly busier than I had intended, but I think it's still very listenable. It's amazing what you can do with one click on a piece of noise cancelling technology nowadays. So I think that's the cue to bring in the pub noise sound effects. Maybe a slightly quieter pub. Yeah. That, that's better. And now, on with the show. Okay, so Connor, just before I started pressing play there, you told me you've never actually been in this pub before, or you have on one occasion. <laughs> uh, but So how did it come yeah. to be the setting, or partially the setting, for uh, your four-part detective novel? Well... I, I, you're correct, John. I, I, I was actually here on one occasion as a younger reporter many years ago. There had been a shooting in the Liberties, and um, I was sent out as a young reporter from the Irish Times to cover it. I don't remember much of the detail, but I did meet a detective from Kevin Street whom I knew. And I said, What can you tell me? And he said, I can tell you nothing here. He said, But if you want to pop down to the, uh, whatever the pub was called at the time, I can't remember the name, but he said, I'll see you there in 20 minutes. So we came down here and, um, he, he gave me what I needed to know that was my introduction to it. But how did I pick it? Um, I, 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 I know the area very well. I've never lived here, but I have worked here quite a bit as a younger porter. Uh, Dublin was my beat. And um, I suppose I wanted a location for Swallow, which would be central, which would be contiguous to the castle where he works. Um, but also which would be the part of a busy, lively community. And I remember walking by one evening and, and, and just seeing this pub as it was, as it was realising it, it suited my need perfectly because it was directly opposite St. Catherine's also, which came in a lot of mystery. It was about 10 minutes walk from Dublin Castle. Uh, and of course, it, it, it had, because it's on a corner, uh, I, <clears throat> I was able to create it. A back entrance, you know, the back entrance I think is long gone, but it was there in my imagination, and this is where Swallows and Formans were coming to dead. This is probably just to my right here, yeah, left exactly. directly behind behind there. here, yeah. Uh, to go down towards Oliver Obama Street, mm-hmm. and this was where Swallows and Formans, Charlie Venucci, and guys like this would come at night and tap at the back door to give him information. Yes, so it kind of it 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 it, it, it suited it suited the job as it were, and it suited the land. So, you, uh, as you said, thematically, it kind of worked with having St. Catherine's across the road, side of the execution of Wolf Tone. And a lot of the book goes into our kind of uh, nibbles at um, the building of heads between the, uh, an insurgent Irish republicanism, uh, official Ireland in the sense of the DNP, and official Ireland in sorts of the, the civil service. We can ring. As a, as a, <clears throat> it's a fellow historian, I don't correct you. Okay. Wolf Tone wasn't executed over there. Excuse me, grab your number. Okay, <laughs> not water there. Okay, <laughs> you learned something in the news. So, did I suppose it opened kind of doors uh, for stories to tell uh, by having uh, yeah. him lodging up above here? I've got a piece of uh, information about the book that I don't know if you'll be familiar with. Did you know that people? Surname Walsh actually lived in the pub in the 1880s. I didn't know that. Yes, I just found that out as a, as a child by, well, it just we got P. Walsh. Uh, it was the name. 
1929, the club became Walsh's. Uh, so Maria Walsh was on home ground. Yeah, so you, you got that accidentally, right? I isn't guess. that interesting? Isn't, isn't it? That yeah. Interesting? yeah. The publican's name was Dennis Daly. Wow. Um, I think he had it from, I have it in my notes here. Uh, I have a timeline somewhere here. Um, well, I, I can fill in another part. Oh, yes. The part of the jigsaw, because as you know, Joe Swallow uh, go up in a public house in, um, in there, yes, behind the current at the place called Madden's Townhouse. Um, and that was his family's home pub. They did quite well out because uh, they're right behind the current, so all the Tommies would come out in and in, put their money on this. But in actual fact, Madden's Townhouse uh, in the uh, early years of the 20th century, the late years of the 19th century, was actually owned by my grand aunt and Mrs. Walsh. Ah, so it was known <laughs> as Mother Walsh's, uh, and she she was Brady by by birth, Walsh by marriage. She never had any children, um, and her marriage to her husband and fell on rocky times fairly early. But I reckon it was a good place for which to have Joe Swallow come because Absolutely. it was a it was rural walls that sir. They were uh, people who I suppose pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps as a lot of Catholic family did at the time. And the licensed trade was one of the ways in which ambitious Catholic families could move forward. Okay, that's interesting. Um did you know the layout of the buildings here? Um, or did you construct it in your head for to suit the purposes of the narrow? I knew the la- I knew the layouts. I knew there were three stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I reckoned that um, there were uh, the pole faced onto two streets. So it probably had two different entrances, a slightly different clientele. Um, and there was probably a select bar and then the mm. public bar which would have been very common in public houses as you know at that time and uh and then as was the custom at the time um the proprietor and his or her family would live in the good rooms upstairs probably some room for storage upstairs but storage in the cellars as well um but the rooms above would have been the good room the square Swallow and Maria live. They have their dining room. They have their bedrooms. They have the there's there's a kitchen up there where where Carrie the cook does the knees for the eating. Um, so it would have been fairly standard and fairly traditionally. It's how they live in about the business. Yeah, I think that was the case for Alice Bar on Fleet Street, which gets uh, two or three mentions over the course in the books. I think uh, Willie Hearn, the proprietor there, I think he talks about. What is now the whiskey palace, the bar on the on the first floor? He talks of that as as the kitchen or the house. I, I think he doesn't know any of that. Yeah, yeah but I, I think his uh, his father for a time would have lived there. Yeah, uh, Willie Willie Senior. Yeah, I guess. But uh, all goes down to he's in he's in and out of the palace of Furbish, which was very logical because um, one of his good contacts was Andrew Dunlop, uh, the Irish Times reporter, who was a real life character. Really? Yeah. Hey. Uh, was a, a very celebrated book called and. A life in Irish journalism discuss now, but Swallow and he becomes quite uh, there's a semi-autic relationship between uh, G Division detective mm-hmm. and Irish Times political uh, culture, and their politics are the same. They're going parallelites, so he's in those palace quite a bit, 
And as I was as a younger reporter, I have to say, as a not so younger reporter in later years. So, with getting details like that is that kind of um, you know that that uh, journalists would have met up with uh, with with Gmail and yeah. uh, policemen in certain pubs. Is that an invention of you of, of yours, or do you have kind of uh, documentary proof that are anecdotal or? From oh yeah, yeah oh yes. I mean, it, it, if you read the intelligence reports, you will find that very frequently the encounters were in in pubs. Okay, and. Um, and they they had codes, so if I were a detective and you were an informant, you and I would agree that um, uh, number one would be watches of Tallis Street. Number two might be the palace. Mm. So if I, as a the informant, wanted to see you as a detective, I would slip a note into the into the letterbox in Exchange Court and maybe bring it into the counter. Archivify a penny to bring it in, and it would say uh, you would have a code name. Mm-hmm. Say your code name might be Silver. Uh, you would give uh, the say with number the code would be number one, and you say seven p.m. So Silver one seven. That means I'm Silver. I'm the former known as Silver. I see you as a watch at seven o'clock. And number three was the brazen head, I believe. That's the brazen head. Yeah, That's yeah. Although <laughs> I think. Um, uh, John Mallon used to drink in the Brazen Head. Mallon, yeah. of course, was again a real-life character, very okay. celebrated head of the G Division. I have a feeling that they used the Brazen Head more for recreation rather than as a place to meet informants. Okay. Now, I will put a correction on that, but... Do, do you think then, as well, just kind of extrapolating from that, they mightn't have been at work in the Brazen Head, that they could, they could relax and have their drink? Would it have worked in the inverse with Charlie Venucci and and uh, Dennis? Have people in there? Um, I'm sure being they had policemen for for knowledge. Yeah, I'm sure they had their own water as well. Yeah. yeah, and just incidentally, on the on the gangs, the Venucci Devs and Sesson gangs, uh, what what is the historical accuracy of them, or were there people like them, or there were they? Exist? I, I've changed the names because uh, the names um, would be fairly. It would be quite common names of one would encounter in, in inner Dublin. Uh, so I, I picked names of people who were not connected in any way with the with the, the criminal okay. gang. There were these criminal gangs at the time. One of them was uh, one of them was actually uh, run by Madame of I put it around Madame Charlie Venucci. They were a family of Italian background. They had come to Dublin. Uh, as so many uh, Neapolitan Italians did in the 19th century, yeah. uh, and they largely brought the ice cream industry and the fish yeah. <laughs> with them. Um, Seth Downs, I've modelled on a real life character. Um, uh, that's not her name, obviously, but uh, the doubt Seth part is correct. Uh, the, the, the character by whom she's based was a a woman who was a servant in a great house in Marion Square and she was stealing silverware from the house uh, and she would store the silverware, spoons, small items like that, forks, um, little plates under her bed. Uh, but the lady of the house became suspicious and searched her room and asked Cess to come in with her wet chips searched the room mm. and she found silverware hidden away out of the bed and Cess was asked what she 
part of this. So she reached under the bed and took up a metal chamber pot with which she brained the lady of the house. As you do. And left her a permanently vegetative state. Oh. So it's as it happens as well. So she became known as Piss Pot Cess. She was pronounced insane uh, at her trial and was consigned to the uh, mental asylum, which I think was in Fort Rand at the time. And, but she entered the days of the asylum anyway, but she was known to all and sundry, as Piss Pot Cess. Would this this have been a famous case, or um, again, would it have been from police reports that you would have gotten this this information? I, I believe, I believe, I came across her in the report from a man who was the resident medical superintendent in Portland. It was named I escape escapes me now, but he did write a book sometime in the nineteen eighties about the history of mental hospitals in Dublin, and uh, I do remember I got. I got the book from my late colleague in the Irish Times, David Nolan. Dr. David Nolan was a great, apart from being a great journalist, great, great critic, and had a great sense of the history of medicine. That's interesting. I suppose, next question is kind of read the world building. Dublin, Dublin is an actual place that exists, but casting your mind back to, or trying to create the world of 1880s Dublin, did you have constant reference points in the way of maps, um, certain books that you would refer to, or Tom's directories, yeah. or stuff like that, just yeah. to kind of give yourself the lay of the land to to immerse yourself mentally in it as you're you're in the process of writing the fictional element? Yes, I, I, I mean, as you know, as you know, John, there's loads, there's loads of sources. The maps are in abundance. Mm. Uh, the city records are very good. The census records are very good. And the, um, the policing when it coach are also very good. So in a sense, what I did was I kind of superimposed the policing maps and the policing records on top of the kind of the municipal city records, the city maps. For example, the Dublin Metropolitan Police was divided into a number of divisions, as it called it. There was A, E, C, right through to F. A was in Kevin Street, the Liberties. B was in Pierce Street, uh, Central City there. C was north of the Store Street. D was the Bridewell. E was Donnybrook, Black Mines. F, the leafy suburbs of Dunleary and, uh, and, and Blackhawk. G was the division in the castle. Uh, wasn't the geographic division. It was the designation given to the, um, <clears throat> given to the, to the, to the, uh, to the G division detectives. So I kind of superimpose that on the on, on on the city, and the interesting thing about it is that up to very recent, the very same divisional boundaries existed, and still do within Dublin City Centre. The Guards A District, as it is now, Kemble Street and Kilmain, is coterminous exactly with the old Dublin Metropolitan Police yeah. A Division. B is the same. B was famous because. The tallest man always went to the B. That was Pierce Street, which was then Brunswick Street. The reason the tallest men went to the B was when the monarch, or when the Lord Lieutenant, was moving around the city centre to important places, there was always a risk of assassination. Mm. Therefore, you surrounded them with tall men. So nobody under six feet got into the B division. And if you were over six, six feet or over, you were put into the B and your job was to stand between the Lord Lieutenant or Queen Victoria 
and the assassins' bullets. But that <laughs> still continues, and the guards still send tallest men and women, I suppose, that's incredible. to Pierce Street. And uh, this is kind of getting away from the books, but I know you're a historian of Garda uh, Sheikhala, as well as uh, policing generally in Ireland. So it seems like that there was the transition between um, uh, Dublin Metro- Metropolitan Police and Garda Sheikhala that there were commonalities. Was there commonalities of personnel? Did people carry on in, in their roles, but under a different hat? Yeah, quite, a, we... quite a few. Um, most of the G Division men in um the in, in, in 1921 most of them packed it in they left mm-hmm. um they were given very generous retirement terms uh they wouldn't have been particularly popular in the new ireland right so most of them left quite a few of them joined the royal Ulster constabulary quite a few of them went to palestine joined the palestine police some left and joined british police forces uh a few, a small few, stayed on on the G Division of the Dublin Metropolitan Garda as it became okay. in 1925. We would say about a dozen men on together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they formed the nucleus of the new special branch, as it was called, mm-hmm. in Dublin Castle, where the guards were amalgamated with the Metropolitan Police in 1925. But you had, you 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 had a distinctive cohort within the guards from 1925 right up to the late 1980s and that was the old inheritance of the old Metropolitan Police the DMP as it was called, they, they had their own rank they had a special rank, Station Sergeant which came between a sergeant and an inspector so you had Station Sergeants in the guards right up to the 1980s it's gone now, the rank is gone at this stage uh, you also had there are traces of the Dublin Metropolitan Police around still. You will still see the old uh, metal police lamps outside Cabin Street, outside Claymalem. Those are distinctively Metropolitan Police. And I, I always think it's one of the interesting things that characterizes the true Dubliner from the non Dubliner. Certainly, in, in my time, as you know, I'm a quarterback running the telephone. People are always talking about the police. Right down the country, we'll talk about the guards. All right. <laughs> there was a shooting. The police are here. Mm-hmm. Right. I said for the police, or if it's that football in the street, I've got the police on you. Now the country. <laughs> the guards. Then you go to the guards. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting distinction. Yeah. I'm kind of, I kind of, I somehow intuitively know that, but I haven't thought about it. Right. You know, it is a back of my head. Yeah. What do I refer to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the course of writing the books or following it, um, let me give you an example. I, I see Dublin a little bit differently in, in terms of, of reading your books because certain landmarks stand out and they're no longer um, they're no longer what they are, they're what they were in my head. For example, Broadstone. Uh, I live up close enough to Broadstone Bridge yeah. Department. So now I see um, the what is now it's a bus terminal or sure, the, yeah, yeah. the old railway station there. I think I would have passed by that, I don't know how many times, without really paying much notice sure. to it. But now I kind of look at it as kind of a, that's a gateway to... To the west. To the west. To the yeah, west. yeah. I also think how handy would that have been to, to have that on my doorstep now. <laughs> but are there elements of Dublin that you look at differently now? Or yeah. has Dublin changed a bit in the course of writing your books? Well, it, it probably has. Um, it has changed a lot. I mean... 
I, I'm a country boy originally. I grew up in the Midlands of County Offaly. Uh, I came to Dublin when I was 12. Um, but I, I learned about my Dublin really by walking around it. And in particular, once I, once I became a young journalist, you know, journalist at Irish Times, uh, I was assigned to what they call the Town Beat for a long, long time. It meant that anything that happened in Dublin, in the city centre, you went out to cover it in Hila, and you walked. So I would have walked out to fires, I would have walked out to crime scenes, I would have walked out to, um, you know, bad traffic accidents, uh, I would have walked to public meetings. So I got to know Dublin terribly well, and and to me, that Dublin, which was 50 years ago, uh, I was 22, 23, and I'm 50 years older than that. So the Dublin that's in my head was the Dublin of 50 years ago. Uh, if I walk through, say, Francis Street or Street now, I mean, I see utter, utterly changed. I mean, proper blocks, concrete buildings, and and it was a whole new ethnic diversity that wasn't near in the So the Dublin has changed. I think it's probably changed more in the 50 years since I worked the beat as the other reporter than it had from Swallow's time up to the time <laughs> that I went there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that, of course, informed my understanding was that I, I, I left the Irish Times out for a few years and yeah, they, I joined at 22. No, I didn't. I joined at 20. And I became disillusioned with it about three years later and went back to college and took a postgrad. But I also took on the job as editor of the Galapagos Review, which was had a, a desk in a small room in Dublin Castle. So I worked in Dublin Castle for a year in the lower yard, which is for a small Ah, in. <laughs> so, in those days, Dublin, Dublin Castle had not been renovated. Uh, we hadn't yet joined the EEC, as it was called. Dublin Castle was in ruins. And as a as a young man, I would, I would wander the corridors, I would wander the buildings. If they do that, you bring in and out for these. And all green offices and rooms and cellars which were basically been left vacant by the British. There were a few offices in operation. There was a revving about some offices. The Chief Herald had an office in the Bedford Tower. The Dublin Metropolitan Headquarters of the Guards is in the whole yard and the special lab. Most of the castle was in dereliction. So I wondered it. met a lot of ghosts. Right. Not <laughs> a lot of ghosts. Got to know where things happened. Got to know the relationship between the exchange court and the castle itself. Um, and uh, you could wonder in and out of the, um, of the state of rapids. That's some, some access. So did you have in your mind's eye then particular rooms, um, you know, as you're writing the book? I did, of course, yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was great. I remember I, I, I was only a year there. Um, and uh, I was actually an employee of the Garda representative bodies at that stage. 
and they moved out fairly shortly to modern office block with Finisburg. But in that year that I was there, it had terrific inspiration. But I remember um, uh, there was a, an elderly retired detective called Johnny McAvoy. And Johnny said to me, so where do you go when you go wandering around? And I said, I just wandered here and there, Johnny. He said, do you ever get stopped? Do you ever get, do you ever get and people are asking where you go? And I said, sometimes they do, yeah. He says, what do they tell you about? I tell them I'm just looking around. I tell them what do. He said, look. He said, here, take this. And he gave me a big brown manila forber. He said, carry that with you at all times. Now, carry in a brown manila folder, he said, and they'll get anywhere. They think that they're on a very, very important mission. <laughs> it's the, the political equivalent of uh, having a high-vis jacket Absolutely, on, I guess. Yeah, and they've got, got me in anywhere I wanted to go. <laughs> Walk in a good enough posture in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So the, the, the books, so they're detective novels, first and foremost, but would you also describe them as historical fiction because they intersect so much with politics, especially, say, in the last two, um, when uh, Parnell comes in yeah, as a yeah, carriage, yeah, or, yeah, you know, yeah. um, he's part of the plot, he only features in one scene or so, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but do you categorize it as such? Yeah, well, he, 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 so he his role increases, and the events that, the events that, formed around his his rise and fall also like the forgeries and the Piggott and Piggott suicide trial commission at the land war uh, the campaign for home rule all of these were on Parna note I was saying earlier on before we start the interview proper um, that was an area I focused on in, in one of the doing history in the CD and um, Really, that period of history, from the 1870s through to, I suppose, the early 1900s, was really the most important period of time in the formation rather than Ireland. Our history education tended to focus on 1916, the War of Independence, Civil War, all of which, of course, were hugely important. But the transition from a peasant, landless, uneducated society, which Ireland was post-famine, to the era that we know now and would recognise when it took place over those years. The ownership of the land moved from the hands of the landlords into the hands of the tenant farmers. Other things realities which we now shape modern Ireland 
where fought like a GAA food was formed against the Gaelic League was formed the whole the whole culture revival of Ireland the Abbey Theatre and um, the revival of the Irish language and things like the establishment of the county councils this all happened in that period of time so it's hugely important and Swallow our hero in the books of course is living through all of this and he is he caught up with some of the contradictions of it because he is a Roman Catholic by background and therefore there are barriers to his investment so far as the establishment is concerned not likely to get promotion in the police he has attempted to qualify himself as a medical doctor but got thrown out from the medical school because of his biggest now, had he managed to make that leap into the professional chances, you wouldn't have a Joe Swallow. <laughs> <laughs> but again, he's sort of emblematic, if you like, of of the yeah. position in which uh, the aspiring Catholic medical chances and the crossroad chances found themselves. And then, you know, the pushback and the resistance from the privileged. Uh, Protestant Unionist Cavres, uh, uh, for example, you know, Doc Boyle, who is incompetent and hapless, but he's of the right faith. Yeah. You know, he has a brother who is an archdeacon, and he's a mason. Yeah. So therefore, he's going to go far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the topic of, um, of um, Swallow's background and the fact that he started or began to study medicine, um, was it always the case that you wanted him to be a man of science, like featuring heavily in the book is yeah. new technologies uh, from the time, <laughs> fingerprinting, new uh, methods of uh, postmortem yeah. by uh, Harry Lefer, yeah. and new methods of document keeping. I suppose with your hat on as a as a police historian, I, yeah. I assume you really wanted to include that. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's what interests you. Pretty much part of the reality. Yeah, of of of, uh, of the time. Um, that the, the, the forensic science uh, actually started to come into its own. And in the early Swallow book, the first Swallow book, fingerprints are yet I know. Yeah. Well, Harry Lefer, who we mentioned, is the medieval examiner for Dublin, only the pathologist or the coroner, somewhere between those two roles. Harry Lefer tells a wandering Swallow that one day there will be a method which people can be identified by the sailor marks, by the ridges on their fingers. It seems a distant dream, uh, but of course it was only a few years away. So, you know, basic blood typing was beginning to be developed. Nothing like DNA that you have now, but they could turn A type blood, B type blood, narrowed down by a fifth or so. Yeah, so you had all of these advances that were taking place. One of the things that actually gave the Dominus product release and the Royal Irish Constabulary uh, great advantage was that two things and the Fenian Rising of 1867 strike the living daylights under the authority and the Phoenix Park murders in 1883 so here you had militant Irish nationalism, being able to reach into the heart of the establishment, murder senior officials, mobilise, not to the point where they could succeed, but certainly to the point where they've been threatened on the border, you know. 
The Westminster government realised that the policing of Ireland had to be supported in every way they could. Some money was poured into the policing services. The RIC were given new modern equipment. Uh, their training was improved hugely, and the same with the Dublin Metropolitan Police. They were given a lot of money to build up things like the Dublin Criminal Registry, which was basically supposed to go to PUS, yes. no? <laughs> along, basically along the system which the librarian views, the Dewey Decimal System, mm-hmm. was regarded as a world leader at the time. Dublin got the most advanced topology yes. services. So Harry Lafair got his autopsy wounds, as they were called. And these were absolutely state-of-the-art. I mean, they had electric light, they had running water, they had steam tables. Um, so this was an era in which, if you like, science and resources were put behind the policing effort. Uh, and so Swallow, although he's going a bit far to describe as a man of science, but certainly in his friendship with Lafair, they were able to talk the same language. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be a man of science. You can just trust in science, not yeah. necessarily have the, the, sure. the powers sure. to use it. And Lafair was quite experienced. He a medical doctor. He served with the British South African police, which were also very advanced. British South African police were largely built by Irishmen, led by Irishmen who had been trained in the depot in the Phoenix, not in the next RIC. They were very advanced uh, in terms of their methods. Another equipment. So Harry Lefer comes back from South Africa with a lot of this knowledge uh, that, that, that he's learned in the field working with the BSAB. I'm going to switch now back to books again. If you don't mind. I, I, as I was reading the books, uh, I was taking note of any time I came across a pub. So yeah. several of them were, of course, uh, known to me and known to people listening as well because they still exist today. Yeah. It was like the Palace Bar, which was called Halls at the time. Uh, Morgue and Temple Oak, which yeah. is the fourth book. Yeah. And there's one more, I believe. The Brazen Head, of course. That, that one comes up over and over yeah. again. Yeah. But there's several other pubs that I was going to ask did they actually exist or did you come up with them? So there's Curvin's on the corner of Fishamble Street, Jack Feehan's, Capel Street. Um, you might not have even thought about these. Feehan's of Capel Street uh, was, I think, for a Slattery's Nowhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. Uh, okay. Some of the other ones are, 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 are fictional and. Um, the dolphin, of course, is, is was there at the tier. Yes. The dolphin is real. The other establishment, of course, which was up, not a pub, but a hotel, was the Burlington. Yeah. Well, my generation, I grew up with the Burlington Hotel, which was a Doyle Hotel in Downingville. Yeah. But in, in Swallow's time, the Burlington was the elite place to eat and sell for Dublin. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, the problem is some of them are real, some of them are not. Many of them have got some name change in. Um, I suppose the role of the pub is very important in the narratives. As the role of the pub was very important in Dublin society, people's homes were generally poor, often unheated, uncomfortable. And the pub, with its waltz and its alcohol and its company, was very much, they so. Pleasant resort. Yeah, it was a necessity rather than it was just a necessity. Yeah, and and uh, and it was it 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 was. I suppose it was it was the opium of the people, if you like, in a way that you know 
in the Hunton Winter, Swallow is musing that he hates Saturdays, not because of Saturday, but because Saturday is the morning enough for Friday night, which was paid out, and all the pubs of Dublin were filled with fellows with mullers to spend. So you've got fights, and you've got domestic incidents, and you've got stabbings, and you've got brawls, and then on Saturday morning the courts are closed. So the cells in the police stations are overflowing. <laughs> Has anything changed in that regard? <laughs> Certainly in the A&E, it's probably still the same case. Um, so pubs are an important place, and some of the other businesses that you go into as well in the books, uh, one that's recurring is uh, um, the jewellers, the pawnbrokers on Capel Street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, F. Goldberg, the character, and his daughter, Catherine, uh, operate out. Was it important to you to get an element of Jewish Dublin into the books? I think so, yes. Um, uh, that Capel Street was, of course, in the, in the 18th century, Capel Street was the fashionable street as Rutland Square was the fashionable and the fashionable Dublin had not yet moved to the south side. Right. This is very well documented in a new book, uh, The Debbing One City, One Book, uh, by Andrew Bewes, um, The Coroner's Daughter, which is okay. crime novel set in that period. Um, but Capel Street was very much a fashionable street, fashionable for living and fashionable for shopping. It also had a strong Jewish community. Um, it had uh, it held it, uh, its own cynical. And I thought it would be a nice polarity to put uh, this Jewish style in the Greenbergs in to Capel Street. This serve a number of purposes in the narrative Catherine, there's, a, there's, there's this undefined frisson which continues between Swallow and Catherine. Catherine is not younger than Swallow, but there's still the possibility of a romantic connection between them. And, uh, but she feels that she needs to work with her father. Her mother is dead. She needs to keep the business going. And then also, of course, because it's a pawn shop as well, the crimes that Swallow was investigating very often lead into that direction where, where, where quality goods appear. And Swallow then in in the dark river and he needs to get expert information in, and uh, some precious stones and some rare coins. So he goes to Ephraim Greenberg, elderly, the cries of the shop. So I, 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 I kind of wove the Jewish thing in a sort of to give a little bit of just a bit more exotic I suppose yeah so I, I lived on, on Lombard Street West a few years ago which right. is kind of in the heart of sure. Jewish Dublin at one sure. point so yeah. nearly everybody well a lot of people yeah. lived on that road yeah. where we're Jewish and used to be yeah. tillers at the end of the road right. um, but I guess there was kind of various different yeah. types. If, as I say there's a synagogue on Capel Street yeah. so that was another another uh, another corner yeah where, where people yeah, lived. yeah. It, 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 it's um I, I suppose when you ask me, is this history part of being side out? I would like to think that, yeah, in the broad sweep, it, it's reflective of, of social history and political history. I don't think there are any egregious 
departures from the historical reality or the sociological reality. Obviously, story itself, though, the characters are real, but our stories are fiction. Yeah, it's and a, they, they exist within larger unfolding stories that are, that are real, <laughs> I guess. Um, more of a personal question, but uh, do you have a favourite pub? In Dublin, or have, or or elsewhere, uh, anywhere in the world, or, or in the country, uh, uh, or somewhere you, you don't have to be a regular there, but yeah. maybe fond memories of. Yeah. So, what would you consider to be a good folk? Yeah, I I um, I have a I have a few kind of. Actually, I live in the west of Ireland now. I live okay I live outside Galway, and uh, um, so I, I kind of um, I, I, I wouldn't be a great frequenter of pubs, but. Morns of the Weir in, in Kilcalgan in Galway is a wonderful place uh, for good drinks and excellent seafood as well. Dublin, I suppose, I, I tend to look to um, the part of Dublin in which I live for most of my life, which is the Abbott and Leary area. And, and I would say that uh, Goggins and Mugstown was always in it, but you and the Fiscatics of Oakland, that's to say, Michael and Eagle, and that would But, you know, the kind of funds that we're dealing with that, that, that people are comfortable in now, it don't bear much relationship to the bit of features in, in the swallow, though, yes. but it's basically a functional drinking business. Yeah. Now, I've often wondered, am I actually stretching reality too far when I'm and I have swallowed boy into certain pubs in Dublin that have been a steak and kidney pie. I don't know what the, did they <laughs> that, did. That's the I wondered. Did they do that? I don't know. Was the was the food better then than it is now? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. See, when I was a reporter uh, in the returns, our pubs around Fleetstreet were you know, the prairie in the corner of Fleet Street and uh, and uh, West World Street. You had. Doyle's uh, on the corner with Pierce Street. Uh, you had the fleet. I don't think any of them actually served food. If they did, just, it was just basically sandwiches, you know, eating. They would like cheese and a bit of ham comb between two sides of the way. Right? They wouldn't have had the facilities to. But the concept of the gastropub, as they call it, that <laughs> certainly wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't there at all. <laughs> <laughs> the the your description of of, of this pub the one that we sit in now yeah. it seems like it was um, a more upmarket kind of place. And yes, some Guinness's powers and local shopkeepers all drank here, <laughs> which would indicate that it was a nice place, but it was also probably a safe place, which is uh, Maria Walsh, the yeah. lady's motivation initially yeah. for having yeah. Joe swallow here. Would you like to have had a, a drink here? Do you reckon I, from your own description? Well, I think it would have been yes. I mean, you see, she she had them. Um, she had improved the premise. She, it came down in the maternal life. She inherited it from her mother, I think, and 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 in turn her grandmother. Well, that was a very common thing, of course, in Ireland. Um, the folks coming down in the maternalist line, uh, because again, ownership of a pub was one of the few ways in which a woman could actually make a way in business. Um, so she had she she invested in the renovation of. Um, of a watch as called as it was called Eminem watch so she she invested quite a lot in it with his running water you know, toilets at the back and things like that 
the she put electric light into the into one of the bars, but she left the other one with gas just in case to fully trust the wheel of it. Um, and she has the pub in two parts. There's a there's a there's a public bar, which is a little bit um, maybe a bit more rough and ready, and then she has the more select bar. She does a serve, of course. Uh, she doesn't pull a pint. She dresses herself like a clean evening. She goes down. She makes her presence felt. She moves from table to table. The bar is run by Dan, the head man. Uh, one or two of his curates, perhaps he intended. <laughs> um, and she is conscious, if you like, of the fact that this is a, it's a select house and she wants to keep it as a select house and therefore Swallow's presence is a little bit of insurance and that, you know, even though he shouldn't be living on the premises, it's against police regulations. Everybody knows he's a policeman. Well, his presence in the bar is enough to deter the possibility of the wrong element, yes, hanging around too much. And once or twice where there is trouble, Swallow moves in and the troublemaker finds himself on his backside out on the street. <laughs> so there's a kind of a, he's a, there's a, there's a synergy there. Um, she, she also, um, of course she wants Swallow to come into the business with her. She wants him to give up his policing work. That's the great personal friction in all of them. And he's conflicted because he, although he works extraordinarily hard as a detective, and the work is dangerous and challenging, he gives him a freedom that he doesn't want to surrender to sit in the sitting room in, 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 in Thomas Street. You always get that sense that he would just, you completely miss the yeah. hunting down of people. Yeah. He, 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 so as you said, that's the continuing stress between the two of them. I don't know how it resolves. There's, I mean, there's another fifth book somewhere in there. No, I've okay. yet, I've yet, I've yet to, 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 to put, put language around it here first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a trust. Yeah. So I, I don't quite know. You see, he's also at the end of the last book, he's reached the rank of detective inspector. And, uh, the big cutoff point would have been with his spectral superintendent. Will he make it superintendent? Mm. Mallon wants them to go to superintendent. Uh, Mallon, of course, is a dog old days. It's a son of a Catholic farmer. You go to assistant wisher. Absolutely unheard of mm. for a Roman Catholic uh, to, to get there. So you have to see how far Swallow goes. Uh, what effect it has on his relationship with Maria. Um, somebody suggested to me that one should probably take a leap forward have him retire and have their son, that it was an infant at this stage, suddenly emerge as a young detective in the new force. Yes, yeah. In the 1920s. So I was half expecting that as a, <laughs> as a leap forward at the end of the fourth book. That, that was, you know, where my mind was going with. I didn't kind of want to give too much away as the interviews for you people who want to read it, but it's about, it's about the unro- uh, unfolding of the crime. But my question was going to be, you know, where would Solo be? And yeah. 1916 to 22, well, you know, he, he would have been retired, presumably, or he, he would have already, he could well have been dead by then because life expectancy was as good then as it is now. He eased off the drink, but yeah, if he did that a little bit, it, it would, um, uh, uh, but he, he would have been gone by the time Columns's hit squads began to assassinate Gmail, and he would have been welcome there. In uh, 2016. I was there. So if I could stretch it, I might get the young swallow, the fledgling, 
uh, to come in. <laughs> Son of Swallow. It was interesting how I got the names. Now, uh, I was back to the lists of the, um, the G Division uh, at the time, and it was very interesting. There was about 80 men in G Division. And I realized that there was a Roman, his crow, it was Pigeon, uh, there was Bird, uh, there was um, uh, half a dozen um, synonyms or birds. What is it? Yes, we invented another bird. Have a new bird, so I picked a swallow. That's a good way to go around the trap and just in the phone book, uh, closing your eyes and picking it. So I have one final question. It's not the most earth-shattering question for you, but it's just something that that, that tickled my interest. Was um, this will be a short answer, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, why didn't Swallow enjoy Guinness's porter during the day? And he'd, he'd only have a whiskey. I told more you, but he wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't have a porter during the day. Was it that bored of experience uh, <laughs> that he went to get that? Um, I'll tell you the background to that. I remember covering by elections around the country and he's had a couple of pints and you're standing there and for one leg to the other wait for Smithy can you find a face whether there's a Jackson doing your time so if I was on the move working I was on the road I would, if I had if didn't very much but if I did drink I'd maybe never gin and tonic in a little pussy full of and um, uh, so I I could have transferred that to Swallow Swallow Ward you that's just a um a nod to the hometown, a girl with Moore. And, um, although, funny enough, um, if he's not the only detective that makes Tullamore Moore do, uh, you know the, the Swedish guy? Um, uh, the, the, the girl with the dragon tattoo. The girl, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the girl. The, the hero there, the woman, uh, she drinks Tullamore Moore. Oh. She drinks it neat. Uh, I just can't think of the name of the guy with the old... Tigars. Exactly, Tigars. Yeah. So he had... Yes, her drink it's all over you, neat. Which, it's fair enough, okay. In good company. So that's, <laughs> that's a lesson to any aspiring journalist listening is don't drink pints when you're on the beach, I guess. See, <laughs> tips for survival. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, well, kind of really thank you so much for sharing your insights and thanks for the books as well. I really enjoyed reading them. Uh, and sure a lot of the listeners might might take them up. <laughs> and okay. I usually wait for people. Well, thanks, John, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, thanks for introducing me here. Uh, I'm just waiting for Swallow to walk in the door or Maria to be downstairs <laughs> yeah. to invite me up for lunch. <laughs> I won't wait too long. <laughs> Maybe you thanks again. Okay. Thanks for listening to my interview with Connor Brady, author of the Joe Swallow historical fiction mystery crime novels. You can find the novels in just about every bookshop in Dublin, online and in your local library. Thanks a million to Connor for taking the time to meet with me and for a very pleasant chat. I'd also like to thank Dave Whelan for his technical assistance on getting the audio cleaned up. And thanks very much to the team from the Magnet Pub on Thomas Street for being so accommodating. They seemed very interested to know that the pub was now part of Irish literary history. If you'd like to send me a message, you can reach me, John, via publin, i.e. at gmail.com. That's it for this week, and all that's left to say is thanks again and slauncher.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.